This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear the first story that Raymond Carver published in The New Yorker back in 1981. It's called Chef's House. Suppose, just suppose, nothing had ever happened. Suppose this was for the first time. Just suppose. It doesn't hurt to suppose. The story was chosen by David Means, whose fiction has been appearing in the magazine since 2004. He's the author of four story collections, including The Secret Goldfish and, most recently, The Spot. He joins me today at the New Yorker office. Hi, David. Hello. You know, given how much influence Carver has had on American short story writing, I was quite surprised that you were the first person in more than three years to suggest (laughs) reading him for this podcast. Is he someone who's had a big effect on your work? I think he has. I think he's had a big effect on every short story writer, whether they know it or not. He's such a corrective. He corrected and brought things back around into a certain direction at a particular time. And if you were like me in college at that time, you read Carver and it, it made you think a different way, linguistically and almost stylistically. So you were kind of jumping off from that point, whether you wanted to or not. So you first started reading him in college? Yeah, I remember buying the little paperback. It had just come out of what we talk about when we talk about love. Right. And reading it and thinking, wow, these are stories about the people I grew up with. Um, I grew up in industrial uh-huh. Michigan. And and also just sort of like you can you can write like this with a sort of clear, accessible style. And I also read Cheever the same year. I remember mm-hmm. getting the big red book of Cheever's stories and getting Carver and I was writing poetry. I didn't really think I'd be a short story writer, but I was writing poetry and I just bought those two books at the bookstore and started reading them. They both hit me over the head in different ways. Mm-hmm. Major, major, major stylists, both writers. Somehow I put Cheever and Carver into like the same box. It's the C's and the V's and the R's. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the alphabetical box. It has nothing to do with anything. Were you reading Carver's poetry as well? No. I was reading like Philip Levine and Richard Hugo and mm-hmm. kind of gritty industrial poets and a, a lot of uh, Walt Whitman. I wrote my senior thesis on Whitman, so I was totally immersed in, in Whitman. So coming down from the sort of uh, elation of Whitman's writing to this very concrete, quite tough Carver stories. Yeah, yeah. They put a lot of the onus onto the reader's shoulders. They're like little shards of narrative glass. And I think he's sort of misunderstood because I think the style that he created, although it's incredibly easy to read and simple, was actually radical because it foisted a kind of isolation upon the reader. A little bit like Hopper's paintings, you know? I mean, they weren't thought of as radical at the time, but now they're looked at as incredibly consistent in the way they evoke. He stuck with that style his whole painting career, and Carver basically stuck with his guns and didn't really change, although his later stories were a little more open. As I mentioned, this story, Chef's House, was the first one that ran in The New Yorker, but it actually post-dates that most famous collection, what we talk about when we talk about love. What is it about Chef's House that stands out for you? You know, it's an incredibly intimate story. It's confessional. It's delicately confessional. It doesn't really have much to it in terms of narrative action, but it's, it's an incredibly quiet, intimate story. A story like this basically just brings a reader to an ultimate moment of quiet 
in loneliness. So embrace yourselves for loneliness. <laughs> we'll talk more after the story. Now here's David Means reading Raymond Carver's short story, Chef's House. That summer, Wes rented a furnished house north of Eureka from a recovered alcoholic named Chef. Then he called to ask me to forget what I had going and to move up there and live with him. He said he was on the wagon. I knew about that wagon, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. He called again and said, Edna, you can see the ocean from the front window. You can smell salt in the air. I listened to him talk. He didn't slur his words. I said, I'll think about it. And I did. A week later, he called again and said, Are you coming? I said I was still thinking. He said, We'll start over. I said, If I come up there, I want you to do something for me. Name it, Wes said. I said, I want you to try and be the Wes I used to know. The old Wes. The Wes I married. Wes began to cry, but I took it as a sign of his good intentions. So I said, All right, I'll come up. Wes had quit his girlfriend, or she'd quit him. I didn't know, didn't care. When I made up my mind to go with Wes, I had to say goodbye to my friend. My friend said, You're making a mistake. He said, Don't do this to me. What about us? He said. I said, I have to do it for Wes's sake. He's trying to stay sober. You remember what that's like. I remember, my friend said, but I don't want you to go. I said, I'll go for the summer, then I'll see. I'll come back, I said. He said, what about me? What about my sake? Don't come back, he said. We drank coffee, pop, and all kinds of fruit juice that summer. The whole summer, that's what we had to drink. I found myself wishing the summer wouldn't end. I knew better, but after a month of being with Wes in Chef's house, I put my wedding ring back on. I hadn't worn the ring in two years, not since the night Wes was drunk and threw his ring into a peach orchard. Wes had a little money, so I didn't have to work, and it turned out Chef was letting us have the house for almost nothing. We didn't have a telephone. We paid the gas and light and shopped for specials at Safeway. One Sunday afternoon, Wes went out to get a sprinkler and came back with something for me. He came back with a nice bunch of daisies and a straw hat. Tuesday evenings, we'd go to a movie. Other nights, Wes would go to what he called his don't-drink meetings. Chef would pick him up in his car at the door and drive him home again afterwards. Some days, Wes and I would go fishing for trout in one of the freshwater lagoons nearby. We'd fish off the bank and take all day to catch a few little ones. They'll do fine, I'd say, and that night I'd fry them for supper. Sometimes I'd take off my hat and fall asleep on a blanket next to my fishing pole. The last thing I'd remember would be clouds passing overhead toward the Central Valley. At night, Wes would take me in his arms and ask me if I was still his girl. Our kids kept their distance. Cheryl lived with some people on a farm in Oregon. She looked after a herd of goats and sold the milk. She kept bees and put up jars of honey. She had her own life, and I didn't blame her. She didn't care one way or the other about what her dad and I did so long as we didn't get her into it. Bobby was in Washington working in the hay. After the haying season, he planned to work in the apples. He had a girl and was saving his money. I wrote letters and signed them, Love Always. One afternoon, Wes was in the yard pulling weeds when Chef drove up in front of the house. I was working at the sink. 
I looked and saw Chef's big car pull in. I could see his car, the access road and the freeway, and, behind the freeway, the dunes and the ocean. Clouds hung over the water. Chef got out of his car and hitched his pants. I knew there was something. Wes stopped what he was doing and stood up. He was wearing his gloves and a canvas hat. He took off the hat and wiped his face with the back of his hand. Chef walked over and put his arm around Wes's shoulders. Wes took off one of his gloves. I went to the door. I heard Chef say to Wes, God knows he was sorry, but he was going to have to ask us to leave at the end of the month. Wes pulled off his other glove. Why's that, Chef? Chef said his daughter, Linda, the woman Wes used to call Fat Linda from the time of his drinking days, needed a place to live, and this place was it. Chef told Wes that Linda's husband had taken his fishing boat out a few weeks back, and nobody had heard from him since. She's my own blood, Chef said to Wes. She's lost her husband. She's lost her baby's father. I can help. I'm glad I'm in a position to help, Chef said. I'm sorry, Wes, but you'll have to look for another house. Then Chef hugged Wes again, hitched his pants, and got in his big car and drove away. Wes came inside the house. He dropped his hat and gloves on the carpet and sat down in the big chair. Chef's chair, it occurred to me. Chef's carpet, even. Wes looked pale. I poured two cups of coffee and gave one to him. It's all right, I said. Wes, don't worry about it, I said. I sat down on Chef's sofa with my coffee. Fat Linda's going to live here now instead of us, Wes said. He held his cup, but he didn't drink from it. Wes, don't get stirred up, I said. Her man will turn up and catch a can, Wes said. Fat Linda's husband has simply pulled out on them. And who could blame him, Wes said. Wes said if it came to that, he'd go down with his ship, too, rather than live the rest of his days with Fat Linda and her kid. Then Wes put his cup down next to his gloves. This has been a happy house up to now, he said. We'll get another house, I said. Not like this one, Wes said. It wouldn't be the same anyway. This house has been a good house for us. This house has good memories to it. Now fat Linda and her kid will be in here, Wes said. He picked up his cup and tasted from it. It's Chef's house, I said. He has to do what he has to do. I know that, Wes said, but I don't have to like it. Wes had this look about him. I knew that look. He kept touching his lips with his tongue. He kept thumbing his shirt under his waistband. He got up from the chair and went to the window. He stood looking out at the ocean and at the clouds, which were building up. He patted his chin with his fingers like he was thinking about something. And he was thinking. Go easy, Wes, I said. She wants me to go easy, Wes said. He kept standing there. But in a minute, he came over and sat next to me on the sofa. He crossed one leg over the other and began fooling with the buttons on his shirt. I took his hand. I started to talk. I talked about the summer, but I caught myself talking like it was something that had happened in the past, maybe years back, at any rate, like something that was over. Then I started talking about the kids. Wes said he wished he could do it over again and do it right this time. They love you, I said. No, they don't, he said. I said, someday they'll understand things. Maybe, Wes said, but it won't matter then. You don't know, I said. I know a few things, Wes said, and looked at me. I know I'm glad you came up here. I won't forget you did it, Wes said. 
I'm glad too, I said. I'm glad you found this house, I said. Wes snorted. Then he laughed. We both laughed. That's Chef, Wes said and shook his head. He threw us a knuckleball, that son of a bitch. But I'm glad you wore your ring. I'm glad we had this time together, Wes said. Then I said something. I said, suppose, just suppose, nothing had ever happened. Suppose this was for the first time. Just suppose. It doesn't hurt to suppose. Say none of the other had ever happened. You know what I mean? Then what, I said. Wes fixed his eyes on me. He said, Then I suppose we'd have to be somebody else if that was the case. Somebody we're not. I don't have that kind of supposing left in me. We were born who we are. Don't you see what I'm saying? I said I hadn't thrown away a good thing and come 600 miles to hear him talk like this. He said, I'm sorry, but I can't talk like somebody I'm not. I'm not somebody else. If I was somebody else, I sure as hell wouldn't be here. If I was somebody else, I wouldn't be me. But I'm who I am. Don't you see? Wes, it's all right, I said. I brought his hand to my cheek. Then, I don't know, I remembered how he was when he was 19, the way he looked running across this field to where his dad sat on a tractor, hand over his eyes, watching Wes run toward him. We'd just driven up from California. I got out with Cheryl and Bobby and said, There's Grandpa. But they were just babies. Wes sat next to me, patting his chin, like he was trying to figure out the next thing. Wes's dad was gone and our kids were grown up. I looked at Wes, and then I looked around Chef's living room, at Chef's things, and I thought, We have to do something now and do it quick. Hon, I said, Wes, listen to me. What do you want, he said. But that's all he said. He seemed to have made up his mind. But having made up his mind, he was in no hurry. He leaned back on the sofa, folded his hands in his lap, and closed his eyes. He didn't say anything else. He didn't have to. I said his name to myself. It was an easy name to say, and I'd been used to saying it for a long time. Then I said it once more. This time I said it out loud. Wes, I said. He opened his eyes, but he didn't look at me. He just sat where he was and looked toward the window. Fat Linda, he said. But I knew it wasn't her. She was nothing, just a name. Wes got up and pulled the drapes, and the ocean was gone just like that. I went in to start supper. We still had some fish in the icebox. There wasn't much else. We'll clean it up tonight, I thought. And that will be the end of it. That was David Means reading Chef's House by Raymond Carver, which can be found in the Library of America edition of Carver's Collected Stories. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant 
that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, David, why is the loss of this house so devastating to Wes? He's made things work for this summer. He's sober. He hasn't been tempted to drink again. He's got Edna. Things have gone well. Why can't this just move to another house? I think the implication is that things are not going well, mm-hmm. that he's on this edge, and that one or two things might push him over the edge, and that the house is maybe the, the last straw. Mm-hmm. When you're in the place that he's at, these objects like a house or the car, they become incredibly powerful as symbols in your own life. I, I do know that reading the biography of Carver, that, that that actually was a real house and that people actually know which house it was that he was renting. Right. And and his, his wife, who was sort of estranged, came and stayed with him there and they, they had a time there. Yeah. Which more or less marked the end of their relationship. That was it. What do you assume in the story is going to happen next? I don't feel like it's going to be a good road for Wes. Yeah. I have a lot of hope for the narrator because she's telling the story, and by telling it, she's understanding what she went through at that point. So you think Wes is going to start drinking again? I don't know. I mean, Carver, the story's incredibly intimate, and it's coming in from this angle, from her angle. It's a confession on her part. It's almost as if she's just telling us this story at a bar or sitting with us in a living room and saying, this is what happened. So we'll never know. That's the great thing about short fiction is that we we can terminate and the onus of the story just pulses out into eternity in our mm-hmm. mind. Carver's really good at that. We carry around his stories and they don't really roll back into themselves. So we just carry them around and try to sort of imagine what might have happened. Something interesting to me in the in the storytelling here is, you know, you're dropped into this relationship. You have to pick up a whole bunch of history just by details. You hear the kids are grown up, so then you figure out these people are probably close to 40 or, or older. They've got grown kids. They've been together a long time. None of this is told to you very directly. And when I looked at it, the entire sort of lead-in and the entire summer passes in the first three paragraphs. <laughs> Looking back, I feel as though the story is about this summer. But in fact, three paragraphs are about that. And then the entire rest of the story is the end of the story. How hard is it to sort of cram that much information into three paragraphs? He makes it look easy, but it must be difficult. In a short story, I think it can happen really. It, it's it's relatively easy. I don't think a lot of writers do it, but mm-hmm. it's not really a trade secret, so anybody can do it. <laughs> it takes a trust of the reader. You have to trust that the reader is going to bring themselves to that leap. It's a bargain with the reader, I guess. The other interesting thing to me in the way the story is written is that it's told from the wife's point of view. Carver didn't write very many stories from a woman's point of view. I can only think of one other one. Why do you think he made that decision? Maybe it's the biographical aspects that we were talking about. I mean, my understanding is that this was really close to home. And maybe intuitively he just knew he had to at least go one step outside and take it to her point of view. I'm not even 100% sure if it works as a woman's voice or not. I mean, maybe I shouldn't admit that. It seems <laughs> he, he won't blame you. <laughs> I mean, it's still Carver, and there's a little bit of a husky tone in there. There's actually um, there's an oral biography of Carver. 
in which his ex-wife Marianne Carver talks specifically about this thing. She was asked, you know, what really happened in Chef's house. I have this one paragraph that she said, There are resemblances, of course. He was happy I was still wearing my wedding ring, for example. What really happened in Chef's house was that at Christmas time he saw John Cheever on the Dick Cavett show. He had been friends with and drunk with Cheever back in Iowa, and here was his friend Little John and Dick Cavett talking about being a writer in New York. Ray made the decision to go east and be a writer there and did so in January. Chef didn't take his house back to give to his daughter. Wow. So (laughs) it's interesting to get it from the real wife's perspective, which was that this didn't come to an end because something brought it to an end. The relationship ended this time, the sort of idyll that they'd have together ended because of Carver's ambition. In a sense, when I, when I read it told from her point of view, I think of it perhaps as an attempt to apologize, that Carver is turning around and trying to see this and to see what this time was like for her. But I could be reading too much into it. I mean, one thing that came to my mind when you were saying that is that Carver's really still misunderstood. I mean, he has this sort of mythic biography that's been built around him. But if you really read his biography, he was from Washington, from the lumberjack region of Washington. But he was actually, you know, incredibly well-educated and really knew exactly what he was doing. And Marianne was an English she became an English professor, I think. She was getting her degree in, yeah. in studying English. So they were both immersed in understanding literature. And um, so I guess maybe this was a sort of message to her, saying, I'm going to make some art out of this incredibly hard decision I made. Does it affect you, the, the way you read the story, to know that it's based on a, a real incident? Does it sort of invest the fiction with something, or does it detract from it? I, I think his style is maybe an avoidance of using his life in a straightforward manner because it's such a pristine style and it, it makes the word chef's house becomes automatically symbolic. It forces the symbol on the reader. So I think maybe his style was a way of avoiding avoiding a certain aspect of, of his life, which would be the academic, really intelligent aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, style is an, a maneuver around what you can't do, not only linguistically with the writing, but it's actually a maneuver around things you can't deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's really interesting. People think that writing fiction is a way of confronting when it's actually often a way of <laughs> working around. Because if you went into the yeah. dead heart yeah. of the things that you're you're really trying to understand, if you went right flew right into the sun, you'd probably destroy yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little dramatic. But I think Carver found in his style a way of avoiding going in there. Well, talking about style, obviously the, you can't really talk about Carver these days without talking about what was done to his style by Gordon Lish, who edited very powerfully those uh, other stories and what we talk about when we talk about love. Where do you fall in the sort of debate about whether that was okay or not okay? I don't want to, but I fall on Lish's side. Uh-huh. Because I think he actually did a huge service to Carver, and I think Carver knew what he was doing, and like any write, good writer... When you see good edits, you know they're good. And the service was finding Carver's style and pushing it out into the world. Mm -hmm. He carved away some of the excess stuff that I don't think needed to be there. Mm -hmm. And the power of those early stories, when you read them, you were like, what? You know, you can do this and get away with it. It's a huge negotiation between a writer and an editor anyway. 
But I also understand the way Carver felt at that certain point in his career when he broke away. Yeah. And I also totally understand the way that all those other people feel who, who think Lish was heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It was right around the time of this story that Carver did break away. In fact, he didn't show this particular story to Lish until it was already bought by The New Yorker and had already been edited and put into galleys. And then obviously with the next collection, Cathedral, it was not edited by Lish. Do you think that Carver had learned something? Do you think that he had incorporated what Lish did to him into his style? Totally, yeah. Yeah. I think Lish and Carver probably learned something together in Mm -hmm. the process. But, you know, it takes a long time to learn how to write. And I think that a good editor really helps teach you how to write. No matter how good you are, it's, it's hard to see exactly what you're really doing mm-hmm. on the page. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of kinship between yourself and the words that you create. It's like self-amputation when you cut out those parts that you thought were wonderful and they actually didn't need to be there. But actually, I mean, Lish, what he did was kick out a lot of the infrastructure in those early stories And even though people think it made the stories look uh, simplistic, it actually made Carver look uh, more modern and more contemporary. And because if you read those early versions, you see that a lot of the stuff was sort of, well, scaffolding is the word that Mm -hmm. comes to mind. Throat clearing. Throat clearing. Yeah. Well, what do you think about Gordon Lish's editing? Well, as as an editor, I should side with him. But uh, what you want to do is pull the writer's voice out of what he or she has done and clear away whatever's obscuring it. There's a fine line between doing that and changing the writer's voice. And I think in some of the some of the cases, Lish changed it. It became a co-production. So, you know, not something that I would personally do, and, and I can see why Carver bristled. But at the same time, I agree with you. I think probably he learned a yeah. whole lot, and uh, it had an enormous effect on the later stories. It was a co-production. Yeah. I mean, he rewrote whole sentences in, in a way that were maybe one step beyond what an editor should be doing. Yeah. Do you want me to do that to your next story? Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) If it ends up like one of these stories. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. David Means' latest collection of short stories is called The Spot, published earlier this year by Faber & Faber. You can subscribe to this podcast and download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.